But let me read for you now Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you that what we are about to hear is the word of the one true living God. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask now for you to teach us the way of your statutes, that we might be faithful and keep them to the end. Give us understanding, we pray, that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in them. Incline our hearts, O Lord, to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life, we ask, in your ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I come before you this morning very excited to preach the sermon that I'm about to preach to you. And there are are two primary reasons for that. First of all, my favorite book in the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, is the book of Hebrews. So for quite some time now, as Chad was kicking around the idea of preaching this book, I was just giddy with delight, hoping that he would. And so here we are, for however long it takes, preaching through the book of Hebrews. And the second reason that I'm excited to be up here is because I've actually never preached a sermon from the book of Hebrews. So it is a a great honor for me to be up here. And one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews is my favorite book, there's many reasons why, but one of the, the top five reasons, maybe if you will, maybe even top three, is because of its pastoral sensitivity. It's very pastorally minded. And you see that right out of the gate. You see that in this introduction that the author of the Hebrews presents in all of its beauty, in all of its poetry, in the deep realities, the deep things of God that it presents to us. And I say that because, remember, the author of the book of Hebrews is mindful of the audience to whom he's writing. He knows that he's writing to these Jews who have converted to Christianity and in so doing have really risked everything. Because as we saw in our study in the book of Acts, Christianity was not a legitimate religion. It was not a legal religion by the Roman government like Judaism was. And so understand that when they converted... They went from legally exercising their religious rights 
who were illegally participating in their religious rites. And that was a big deal. And we know from elsewhere in the book that because of that conversion that took place by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, they had already experienced persecution. We know from Hebrews chapter 10 that some of them lost their homes. They lost their land. They lost their property. Some of them were imprisoned. And so some of the Christians, these Jewish Christians, are going and visiting these other imprisoned Jewish Christians. And they're experiencing social pressure to turn away from Christianity, to turn away from the Son of God and return back to the ways that they once walked in, the ways of the Old Covenant, the ways of the Mosaic Law. And now, here they are when the author writes this letter to them. And whereas they used to embrace this suffering and understand we're suffering even as our Savior did, and He said that this would happen, they're feeling worn down. And they're looking at themselves, and they're looking at their circumstances, and they're wondering, how much longer can we hang on? How much longer can we endure this persecution? How much more are we going to have to lose? And so fear and doubt and temptation begin to creep in. And their eyes lose their focus from Christ to the things of this world. Their focus is on themselves. Their focus is on their circumstances. Their focus is on their suffering. And so what does the author of the book of Hebrews beautifully pastorally do? Does he roll in right from the beginning and smack them in the gut with a bunch of commands? Or does he he scare them with threats of what will happen if they do turn away from Christ? And return back to the bondage of the old covenant? No. That's not where he starts. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not afraid to go there. He eventually will later on in the letter. But that's not where he starts. What does he do? He draws their attention. He draws their gaze to the beauty and majesty and excellencies of their Savior, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And that's exactly what they need, isn't it? They need their sight. They need their faith refocused on the person and work of the Son of God. And so that's what he's doing. And we've seen that that he lays out these seven descriptions of Jesus. don't know if you're aware of this, but the number seven in Scripture symbolizes completeness, perfection, or fullness. And it's that the fullness of God's revelation has now come in the Son, in the New Covenant. It was partially there in the Old Covenant, but now the fullness has come in the Son. And so it's like wave after wave crashing upon their souls, not meant to destroy them, yes, meant to humble them, but meant to overwhelm them with the glory and the beauty of their Savior. And so what has He told them so far? He said about the Son that He is the Father's best and final word. He is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And today what we're going to see is that He describes the Son to them as the one who, as we see in the middle of verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It is an incredibly high and lofty truth 
That, that if you have the hopes of coming to understand the depths of that this morning, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because we are very much going to be reminded of our finitude and our creatureliness. But what this is meant to do is it's meant to encourage us. It's meant to encourage the suffering Hebrew Christians who it was originally written to, to hold fast to the Son of God, the one who is Son, who has now been revealed. And so what I want us to do as we look at this verse is two very simple things, very simple outline this morning, two questions that I want this text to answer for us. What, what first of all, is this little segment of verse 3 telling us is the truth about the Son of God? What is it telling us about Him? So that's very straightforward and simple. And then second of all, I want us to see how it encourages us, even as it encouraged the original audience, to hold fast to Christ. What does it tell us about the Son of God? And how does it encourage us to hold fast to Him? So let's look first then at what this verse tells us about the Son of God. Look at the middle there of verse 3. And He, now who's the He? The He is the Son of God, the one that He's been talking about this entire time. The one that is the revelation of God the Father, of the triune Lord. He is the Son, the only begotten of the Father. He is the one who does what? He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now there is so much packed into that little phrase of this little tiny verse. And I hope to show that to you this morning. That word upholds there was brilliantly chosen by the author of the book of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that I say that is because every commentator, every scholar that I read on this verse said that that word in the Greek carries two meanings. First of all, it can be translated and carries the idea of bearing up, of carrying, of sustaining, of preserving. And then it also carries this idea of bearing or carrying along, moving something to a specific goal. It's being moved forward with a specific purpose. And so both of these ideas are in this Greek word uphold that we translate uphold here. To bear up, to preserve, and also to bear along, that is to govern. And so what's being brought to light here is the providence of God. The providence of the Son of God that in all things, in all creation, He both preserves them and He governs them to His appointed ends. So I want us to look at each one of these in turn. First of all, look at, let's, let's look at the fact that the Son preserves all creation. We know if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, who created everything? God did. In the beginning, nothing else existed but God And then he created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how does the author of Hebrews tell us that God the Father, that Yahweh created all things? Look back at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. At the very end of verse 2. Through whom he, um, also he created the world. The Father created the world through the Son as his spoken word, as the word of God. God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's creation through the Son of God, through the Word of God. And so everything that exists 
exists because it has been created through the Son. Now, if that isn't mind-boggling enough, the truth that the uh, author of the book of Hebrews is pointing out to us now is that those things that exist because they were created through the Son continue to have their existence because the Son gives that to them. In other words, all of creation, that word universe there, can easily be translated all things. All things visible, the things that we can see and touch and taste and smell, and all things invisible, like the angelic host, have been created through the Son, and they've been given their existence through Him, and they continue to receive their existence through him as well, from, through the word, by the word of his power. So what, what, is, what are we being told here? If the Son didn't do that preserving work, what would happen to all creation? The, the Son doesn't create things and then they have existence as an essential part of their being. Because if he ceased sustaining them, if he didn't give them their existence, their being, if you will, then they would revert back to the nothingness from which they came. We know that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's what Genesis 1 shows us. And all creation would revert back to that nothingness if the sun didn't bear it up and continue to grant to it existence and its being. All things created, visible and invisible. Now, what, what does this make us realize, first of all, it makes us realize just how incredible the Son of God is in this work that He does. I mean, the reason you understand that this piece of wood here that is now a podium, I believe this is oak. Originally, it was an oak tree. That's a miracle in and of itself, right? A little seed is put into the ground, and through water and oxygen sunlight, photosynthesis, this little tiny seed grows up to be this massive tree that can then be cut down and turned into this podium. And what you have to understand is that tree exists because Jesus created it to exist. The Father created it through him. And it continues to be what it is and doesn't revert back to non-existence and non-being Because the Son upholds it and continues to give it that existence. So I can lean on this pulpit this morning by God's grace and not have to worry about it disappearing. Now, the Son could do that if he wanted to. It would be a hilarious trick to me. Um, But just look around this auditorium. I mean, the, the seat that you're sitting in right now, We take this for granted. Well, it's because of the nature of the the molecules and the particles of plastic that I'm able to sit here. All that's true. I don't have to deny that. Those natural processes, things doing what they do. But what we so often miss is that who is the one who is upholding those things, making all of those little natural processes doing what they do? The Son of God. He's upholding all things. Why are your synapses firing right now and able to follow along with what I'm saying and looking at the text and your hands are doing what they're doing and you're you're breathing and your heart is pumping and supplying blood? Why aren't your particles just floating apart from each other and you're returning to the nothingness from which you came? Because the Son is holding you together, is granting to us not just our original existence, but our continued existence. See, what we're being shown here is that all of creation, all the created order is contingent. 
It's dependent. It doesn't have existence in and of itself, even after it's been given existence. It needs to continually be given existence. It continues to be contingent upon the one true living God. And which person of the Trinity does that work? The Son. He upholds it. He bears it up. And so we don't return back to the nothingness from which we came. Can your mind even wrap around that? Mine can't. And, and this, you should never be bored because this is true. You should stand in awe of the created order around you because you're not just observing natural processes happening, chance, fortune, none of those. You're watching the Son of God at work. Is there anything more humbling than that? The creator and the creature distinction, the infinite and the finite, the divine and the human. What is more humbling than this reality? That he upholds all creation, all the galaxies. They don't just exist because of him, but they don't move in orbit without him moving them that way and continuing to sustain them so that they have existence rather than reverting back to non-existence. So that's the first thing. The son, because he loves his creation, he cares for it. He preserves it. So you better, we better be thankful for that. We better give him honor for that. That he continues to give us, as Paul says in Acts 17 when he's in Athens, life and breath and all. He, he get, in him we live and move and have our being. We exist because the Son upholds us. So that's one truth that's being taught to us, that, that He bears up all creation. But then He also, secondly, bears it along. He carries it to a divinely appointed end. So we have the preservation of creation by the Son, and then we also have the governing of creation by the Son. There is a divinely appointed end for all things, And the Son works in the universe, works in all creation to those divinely appointed ends. He works in all time and space and history to that great glorious end. Now, this breathes so much meaning into the Old Testament. It should for you. Here's why. Because when you're reading through the Old Testament, and you open up starting in Genesis, and you read about creation, and then you read about the fall and the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and God's dealings then with Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and then the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt, all the miracles that he does, and the wilderness wanderings, and the giving of the tabernacle, and the leadership of Moses, and Joshua, and the judges, and the kings, and then the division of the kingdom, and then finally exile, and then the return back from exile. You understand that what you're reading about is the sovereign working and bearing along of all creation by the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten of the Father. And He's moving and working through all of those things, all the types and shadows, every event in salvation and redemptive history to His first coming. And here's the thing. This reality is not just true of salvation history, it's true of world history, isn't it? You can read the history of any time period, any, any place in the world at any time 
in, in history. And understand that that is the Son of God sovereignly working in all things to His great divinely appointed end. His first coming. And what, what is that great divinely appointed end? Well, quite simply, if you know the children's catechism, I'm, we're trying to teach it to my son through really annoying songs that I won't sing to you, but they're super catchy. And why did God make you and all things? For His own glory. For the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the most profound yet simple truths that we can ever learn and come to understand. And so, what the Son of God is doing in all of history, in all of creation, is He is moving it, bearing it along to its divinely appointed end, which is the glory, the exaltation, the display of the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And a part of that glorying is the redemption of His people. The people that God has chosen, that the Father has chosen to give to the Son, to restore communion and fellowship with us that we lost. Because you understand that's a part of the story, right? Why did God create us? He created us to glorify Him. And how do we glorify Him? By having communion and fellowship with Him. That's what we had in the garden. It's what Adam and Eve had. The ability to obey God's commands. And, and, and this, they, were, they were not yet fallen. And so they walked with Him and they were to be fruitful and multiply. Create little image bearers that would spread across the face of the globe and bring glory to Him as they exercise dominion and submission to God's Word over all creation. And yet, what happened at the fall? Did they obey God? No. Instead, they obeyed the serpent. They sought to be a law unto themselves. They did what was right in their own eyes and they sinned. And thus came sin and death and separation from God. That's why they're kicked out of the garden, kicked out of the place of blessing where they communed perfectly with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so all of the Old Testament, I can't read the Old Testament now without just this longing welling up. When is the Redeemer going to come? When is the Messiah going to come who was promised in Genesis 3.15 who will crush the head of the serpent and restore our fellowship to Almighty God? And you get little glimpses of it all throughout the Old Testament, but they're just types and shadows. They're preparatory for the coming of the promised one, who is the second Adam, the true Israel, who who doesn't fail to obey God like Adam did, who doesn't fail to obey God like Israel did, who doesn't fail to obey God like you and I have. And so then the Son of God, this glorious second person of the Trinity, becomes incarnate, Becomes a man. Why? He has to do that so he can do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. He obeys the law. He fulfills all righteousness so that can be imputed to us in our account rather than the guilt that is in Adam and our own sinful decisions. And then he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. We couldn't pay that debt. It was an infinite debt. So only God could pay it. And yet he had to be fully God and fully man so he could also pay our part of the debt as well. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And then he rose and conquered sin and death and then sent the Holy Spirit. And now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have now more intimate fellowship and communion than they, they, with the triune God than they did in the old covenant. See, this is what the Son was working in all of history to do. The glory of the triune God, His grace, His justice, His wrath, His eternality, 
his wisdom, his knowledge, and also the good of his people that he graciously enters into covenant with because he loves them and thus redeems them. And so this is the gospel. This is the good news that the Son has been upholding and bearing all things towards this this great end of the glory of God and the good of His people. And I mean, I hope that you take more time than we have during this sermon to reflect on these realities. The fact that the Son upholds all things so they continue to have their existence and that He works through all of history to bring about His own glorious ends. His will cannot be thwarted. No creature's will is ultimate. The will of God, the will of the Son, the will of our triune Lord is ultimate. Is there anything you can't study and walk away worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? No. Why? Because it's all the work of His hands. And it would not exist and continue to have existence if it wasn't for Him. Now, as if that weren't mind-boggling enough, as if that weren't humbling enough, how does the author of the book of Hebrews tell us that the Son does this? How does the Son uphold all things? He tells us in the middle of verse 3, He does so by the word of His power. In other words, He simply has to will it. He simply has to speak it. And it happens. If something doesn't exist that He wants to exist, He can will its existence and then it exists. If something isn't happening and He wants that thing to happen, He simply wills it and then it happens. And so it was amazing, as I was studying this passage, I read um, a commentary by John Chrysostom, an early church father. He was called the gold-mouthed preacher. He was such a great preacher. And then also the Puritan John Owen. They both wrote commentaries on Hebrews. And they both mention that there's this easiness with which the Son does this. I mean, we can't even begin to comprehend but the smallest steps in how the Son is upholding all things. And yet for him, it's an easy thing. He just has to will it. Again, this important distinction between God and us, between creator and creature, the infinite and the finite. Because your word doesn't work that way, does it? Right, parents? Right, spouses? Right, friends? Right, anyone who has to interact with other human beings? Has to. Gets to interact with other image bearers of God? Has that wonderful privilege? Freudian slip there. Right? I mean, you don't tell your kids once. Now, you may want to work towards this. I I commend that to you. First-time obedience. You don't start there, though, do you? You have to teach that to your kids. You don't just say, hey, don't touch that, and your kids are like, oh, you know what? You know better than me, so I'm not going to touch that. Thanks Thanks for the command. I'm going to... No, you may eventually get there. It's not where you start. Or if there's something in your spouse that needs to change, you don't just tell them once. Or your friends. You don't just tell them once and it necessarily happens. That may happen occasionally. But the majority report is our word does not accomplish the things for which we send it out, does it? More often than not, it does not. And that is not the case with the Son of God, with our triune Lord. He speaks and it happens. Let there be light and there is light. And so there's this, again, this distinction. Or what about your will? Think about your will. All right? Now, some of us may want to be losing weight. And some of us, if you're maybe a young enough guy, you may want to be packing on some muscle. I remember those days. 
But whatever camp you're in, try to will in your heart and your mind, I need to, I want to, I will to lose this much weight. Just sit there and do that real quick. This took a turn for the really weird, didn't it? It's like a Tony Robbins. I'm trying to show you how impotent you are, okay? How ineffectual your words are. Okay, you willed it. Did it happen? No, it didn't, right? I didn't all of a sudden bulk up on these, these big biceps or anything. Why? My will is a finite creaturely will. And also, by the way, that's a part of the fall, isn't it? What are the thorns and thistles through which Adam must now wade and, and care for the created order and provide for his family. It's thorns and thistles. What are those? You know this if you have a garden or a yard. They're distractions. They're frustrations to having a clean flower bed or a nice lawn or a good garden. They're frustrations. And so our will and our words are frustrated even more so because of the, because of the fall. That's the difference between the word and the will of a creature and the word and the will of Almighty God Himself. There is this easiness with, about which the Son brings all of these things. Does that job just blow you? Well, maybe it's just me. But, or maybe I'm not doing a good job communicating these truths. But let me tell you, it's not just worth the rest of the week for you to meditate and reflect on these and applying them to every area of your life as we're going to do a little bit, to specific areas in a bit, but the rest of your life. The rest of your life. Now here's the thing though. So we've seen that all things are created through the Son. They're continually given their existence by the Son, by the word of His power, and He moves them all to their appointed end. But here's the next question that we have to answer. How does this encourage us to hold fast to the Son? We've seen now what it tells us about the Son. Now how does it encourage us to hold fast to the Son. Well, let's start with the, the original audience here. Remember their situation. They have external enemies who are persecuting them, who are bringing about suffering upon them. And so they're afraid of what suffering is going to come next. If you've been in prolonged suffering, you understand what this is like. What else am I going to have to lose? You know, you can, you can, you can endure the, the loss of some things, but as they continue to pile up, you start to wonder, man, is this worth it? Is this worth it? And, and, and I'm terrified by what my enemies are going to do next, how they're going to exert their will over me, oppressively, unjustly, unfairly. And so they're afraid, and they're wondering, maybe Jesus isn't worth it. Let's make, well, you know, the pressure would be off if we returned back to Judaism. We go back and we offer those sacrifices and observe those ceremonies, and maybe it's not worth it. And so what does the author of the book of Hebrews brilliantly say here? How is he pastorally encouraging them? He's saying, listen, your circumstances, your enemies, do you know why they exist? They exist because the Son of God created them. Now, he didn't create them fallen. They inherited that. That was imputed to them through Adam and through their own sinful choices. But they exist because the Son gave them existence. And they continue to exist because the Son continues to give them existence. If He didn't sustain them in those ways, they would no longer exist. Jesus could completely eradicate all of your enemies like that by simply willing it. But then He takes it, it goes an even step further because it's not just that He created them and sustains them. 
but he is sovereignly in control of their very sinful actions against you in such a way that he doesn't violate their wills and he's not responsible for their sin. But he is sovereignly bringing this about for his glory and for your good. And so why do you tremble before them? They're mere creatures. They're not the creator. They're finite. They're not the infinite. Don't fear the one who can hurt body and soul, but the one who can throw your body and soul into hell for all of eternity. And so he's saying, listen, listen, I'm sovereignly in control of your enemies and any losses that you may experience. And so do not tremble before them, tremble before me. And your fear of me, your awe of me, your reverence of me, your love of me will conquer that fear that you have about your external circumstances. But it wasn't just that. They're also concerned about themselves internally, aren't they? The longer this suffering carries on, I don't know how much longer I can bear up under it, how much I can endure and persevere. And so I'm afraid maybe that I'm going to fall away. That temptation is looking more and more appealing the more suffering that gets thrown on my back, the heavier my burden becomes. And so what does this truth come and say? This truth says, just as it is in the created order, so it is in the recreated order. Listen, what has the Son of God done in you by the Spirit? He's created something in you that was once not there. Spiritual life. You were once spiritually dead, and He's now given you spiritual life. He's given you the gift of faith, and He doesn't just give that to you and say, take good care of it. No, He sustains it. And he sovereignly rules over you and will move you to your appointed end. And so if he upholds all things, the universe, the galaxies, and all of the the great and the small, all of the particles and atoms, all the natural processes that you see unfolding before you, surely faint heart, surely trembling Christian as you look at yourself and your circumstances, he will up. Hold you. What does the author of the book of Hebrews say? His whole intent is. Hebrews 13 verse 22. Bear with my word of exhortation and encouragement. He's trying to encourage them. This is why you should hold fast and not abandon the Son of God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does this apply to us? Well, we're not in exactly the same situation, are we? (laughs) Thank God. I mean, I laugh at that, but thank God. Some of our missionaries may face something very similar to this. But none of us have had our our homes taken away, our land taken away. We we don't gather here illegally, not yet anyway, with, with the threat that we might be imprisoned or killed. And I don't think, if this, you fit in this category, you come talk to me after the service because I want to talk to you. But I don't think any of us are tempted to return back to the temple and start slitting the throats of goats and cows to make atonement for our sin. Temple was destroyed in AD 70. It's not even there for you to offer those sacrifices. So our situation is very different. But here's what I want you to see. Our situation is also very similar. Because the temptation of every Christian heart is to do what? turn away from Jesus as if Jesus weren't enough, as if there was something better than Jesus, as if my family were better than Jesus, my job is better than Jesus, my comfort is better than Jesus, my pleasure is greater than Jesus, my reputation is greater than Jesus. 
My health is greater than Jesus. Take your pick. We're constantly being tempted to turn away from Him in the face of our circumstances and our own trembling heart. And and as we look at the, the flesh, the world, and the devil as they're arrayed against us, and what we have to understand is, why do those things exist? They exist because Jesus gave them existence, and He sustains them, and He's sovereign over our enemies. He's sovereign even over your sinful decisions. You're responsible for them. And that's not an excuse to go out sinning. But what hope do you have that he can even work good in your sin, as the Scripture says that he does, if he's not sovereign over that? So as you look at your circumstances, and, and, you, and you, you can understand, he is sovereign and in control of all of those. He upholds all of that, and he's working it to his appointed ends, as bleak and as dark and as hopeless as it may seem to you. Trust Him. Look to Him. Turn your gaze upon Him. And then as you look at yourself, and you go, I've been able to endure this long, but I don't think I can hang on any longer. That's usually when people come see me, by the way, in the church. They're at the end of their rope. I'm like, couldn't you have come a little bit earlier? But it's all right. It's the 11th hour. Now we get to really watch the Lord work in such a way that we can't say anything, but clearly He is the one who did this. But what is the, the truth that is given to the Hebrews is the same truth that's given to us. He's made us a new creation. And He sustains that new creation. And He will keep us and uphold us to our appointed end. He will not lose a single one. He will uphold us. He will hold us fast. And there's nothing better than Him. Nothing that came before. Nothing that came after. Nothing that you're currently experiencing is greater or better than the Son who gave Himself for you. So do you see how encouraging this is? As you look at yourself and you tremble, no faint heart, that if the Son of God, your Savior, is upholding all creation, it's a small thing for Him to uphold you. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. So what should we do then? Look to him. Where else are you going to go? Remember when Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave too after he talks about eating my flesh, drinking my blood? There's some confusion about that. And so some of them are like, we're getting out of here. And he turns to the 12, you're going to leave too? And what do they say? Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Brothers and sisters, where are you going to go? You want security? You want to know that you're going to be held fast? Look to the Son. He's the one who's holding you fast. Security can be found nowhere else, from no one else. And so because that's true, we can sing together as we're about to in a moment, and as I believe we will on into eternity. When I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. So He must hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God, our Savior, who upholds all things by the power of His Word, will hold us fast. So let's hold fast to him by his grace.
Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we tremble before your greatness. If it were not for your grace, these truths would be absolutely terrifying. That you've created us, that you continue to give us our existence, that you're sovereign and in in control of all things, that no one's will is ultimate but yours. If we were unbelievers, this would make us want to run out of here in terror. So I do pray for any unbelievers that are here, that they would see what your son has done, that they might be reconciled, and they don't have to be an object of the wrath of Almighty God, but an object of grace. Do that miracle in them, we pray. And we pray for those of us who are believers, that we would cling to you, Christ. Oh, how glorious you are, Son, in your power and in your might, worthy of all glory and honor and praise along with the Father and with the Spirit. May our hearts be filled with meditations on who you are all the days of our lives. And may we understand that as we struggle, as we suffer, as we're tempted to backslide, that what we need more than anything else, yes, we need threatenings, yes, we need commands, but oh, how we need a clear understanding of your beauty and your excellencies and that you hold us fast. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.